Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. First Peter chapter 2, reading three verses with verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that it might be, that, it, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And I'm just going to focus on that second verse. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Um, I'm just going to talk for a few minutes this morning on sanctification. What it means to be sanctified and how God helps us to grow spiritually. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning, thank you for your word. Uh, For the people that are here this morning, I ask that your anointing would be here with us, that it would talk to us, that you would speak to us, to our hearts and our minds, to grant us strength for this journey, to grant us that we may grow in you, that we may mature to become mature spiritual Christians. And we ask this this morning in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The psalmist said that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Speaking of the creation of a person. The Bible talks about it being a mystery of how a human being is formed in the womb. And we look at it and say it is, it's a miracle of life. But imagine when they looked at it, not knowing, not having sonogram capabilities, not having knowing what's going on inside the mother's womb, it would have truly been a mystery. And the psalmist says, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. One of the greatest joys in my life was to witness the birth of my two sons. And my oldest, when uh, he was born, there was a blizzard. I think it qualifies to call it a blizzard uh, that came through. Um, when we got to the hospital, it was not snowing. I had to go back home uh, to get some stuff and driving back. I didn't know if I'd make it back. Um, I was just snow blind going the 20 miles back to the hospital. But when we all came home, it was a sunny day, but the roads were still covered in snow and ice. And I had a 20 mile trek on a two lane highway to get home. And I remember I was so nervous driving. My hands were at 10 and 2. I was, I was the model driver, um, you know, coming to a full stop, looking both ways twice. Um, I felt like I was carrying an egg in a basket in the back. I was so nervous driving home that 20-mile trek with a baby in the car. And, but it's because babies are helpless creatures. Every single baby ever born, including all of us, were dependent on us keeping them fed and clothed and bathed and protected. No baby survives at all 
zero percent chance that baby survives and grows up without complete nurture and care from somebody else. It's because the process of growth takes time. It takes months to crawl and then they walk and eventually run and vocabulary is formed slowly and the progress is so slight that if we're not careful we miss it. We miss the progress. It's, it's hard to see our own children grow because we see them every day. We know they have but we don't really know from one day to the next. You just look up one day and think, man, they, they've gotten big, but I don't know when that happened. I never saw the growth. But if you see somebody else's children and you, it's been two years since you've seen that kid, you notice, hey, last time I saw that kid, it's like, man, they've really grown up since I saw them. But we don't see our own growth is because it takes time, both mental and physical growth, maturity take time. And that's designed by God intentionally. God could have used an entirely different system. He could have caused a child to grow from infancy to an adult in one week. And if He had designed that from the beginning, we wouldn't think it strange. We wouldn't know any different. This child just, they say they grew overnight. Well, in this case, you would actually grow overnight. It could take one week. But God didn't design it that way. He said the, the divine design of God is slow progression in every area of life. It's just how God does it. How foolish it would be for us to scold a two-year-old child because they couldn't write a novel or do math in their head. You know, to the two-year-old, quick, what's 75 times three? Yeah, well, no supper for you tonight. You know, you should be smarter than that. Well, no, they're two years old. They, they're not going to be able to do that. So we patiently teach and train our children, knowing that if we're simply faithful to the process, all we have to do is be faithful to the process. They will in time grow into healthy, mature adults. I've had instances with my children where you know, they'll come home with a grade. It's like, well, they're not, not just one grade, but like we think that they're not quite up to speed on, on this particular subject. And it's never concerned me that much because I know if we're faithful to the process, it's not like they're going to turn into an adult that can't do basic spelling. I mean, we're going we're gonna to be faithful to the process and it, it will turn out okay. And new believers are no different. Right? Let me pull back that word and just say believers. All of us are no different. Whether it's a child raised to be a Christ follower or an adult who's coming to faith for the first time, we are all start this out as spiritual newborns. Jesus Himself alluded to this, and we miss this when we talk about you must be born again. Being born again, or I think more precisely in the text, is being born from above the second time. I'm having a heavenly birth. It, the language is there is that we're starting over. You may be a 50-year-old man, but if you come to faith for the first time, you are a spiritual baby. And that means that all the principles of how life works in the natural apply to that 50-year-old person in the spiritual. Paul said, or Peter said, as newborn babes, notice, he does not say as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word. It's not as newborn babes do this. There is a comma there, and that comma changes the whole sentence. As newborn babes, comma, desire. That word desire is a command. He's pausing and saying, as newborn infants do this, so you should desire the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. So sanctification is a process that moves us from new birth 
to a place of maturity in Christ. And it is done by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God. It's an act of the Word of God, Ephesians 5.26. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it, that He may sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the Word. The sanctification comes by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God, what we just read in in. 1 Peter, one chapter before that, it says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit. So ministry, what true ministry is, is proclaiming the Word of God and declaring the glory of God for the sanctification of all believers. That's what ministry is, is being the conduit through which the Word and the Spirit can flow to people. It's not my words that change lives. I'm not a motivational speaker. I'm simply a conduit in a service like this that the Word of God can go forth. It comes from your personal devotion, your personal Bible reading. As you're reading those words, God is transforming you on the inside. You're reading words in the text and you're looking at it as a mirror and saying, do I line up with this? And the answer is always not complete. I'm never completely lining up with with the Word of God. I always have attitudes and drives and emotions and inner things and closets in the deep recesses of my heart and back door places that that I haven't let God into to clean out yet, that He still needs to get in there and clean out that room. That's sanctification. Discipleship is what the church does. Discipleship is us discipling people, teaching people. Matthew 28, go into all the nations, go into all the world and teach baptize and make disciples we make disciples i don't sanctify you don't sanctify other people the spirit of god and the word of god is what does the work in our hearts to sanctify us to change us to help us to grow it's because no matter how old you are when you come to faith in christ you bring a lifetime of baggage every person has hang-ups and weaknesses and tendencies to fail in the same areas of sin over and over and over again And people come to Jesus with depression and addictions and a history of abuse and low self-esteem. And the list just goes on and on. And they come and say, here, Jesus, here is my broken life. Jesus says, I can work with that. Churches better be able to say, we can work with that. Because Jesus is saying, I can work with that. Because we're, we're all broken. We're all broken creatures. We're just broken in different places. The very definition of self-righteousness is to look at somebody and say, well, I'd never do that. I would never be that person. You know, well, maybe or maybe not. It's just they're broken in a different place. That person could also flip the script on you and say, yeah, you've got some areas there that you've got some hangups there that that I, I don't know what that's like. So we're all broken people. We come to Christ. He justifies us. He pardons us of our sins. He forgives us. And He counts us righteous before Him. We stand as new believers and we glory in the acquittal and we celebrate the fact that we now have eternal life. But we soon discover we still have the same sinful nature that we had before we were saved. We have a sinful nature, but we also have a new identity in Christ. And we don't identify with that sinful nature. My identity is now in Christ. This is being played out really strong right now uh, in in particular 
in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church of America. There's a big infight there um, and what's going on and the, the subject is bigger than the PCA. Every denomination will deal with this, but right now the PCA is, is dealing with this pretty heavy and that is what is called side B homosexuality. And what side B is, and there's a group called Revoice, and what they're trying to do, and, and the argument is that we are, we identify as gay Christians. We think it's wrong. We think it's a sin. We just are still that way. So we're going to live celibate lives, but we're still homosexuals. We're just not practicing because we do think it's a sin. So this is where it starts getting in that middle ground because it's not a group of people saying that it's okay. It's a group of people saying it's sin, it's wrong, it's just how we are. It's like we're that way. And what they do, how this plays out um, becomes really bizarre. It, it gets to the extent of they encourage men to have um, close male friends to fulfill this, this side of it and they'll even have commitment ceremonies and things like this. Um, so the, these people, and in the PCA they're trying to get side B homosexuality to be accepted, this revoice to be accepted in the PCA. And um, A couple guys that I know are within the PCA are fighting this really hard and the, the best explanation that I read was um, guy named Beckett Cook. So Beckett Cook is a, he was very involved in Hollywood, was in a lot of commercials years ago, I think did some acting, was a homosexual in Hollywood. And God transformed his life. And now he has, uh, he's got a YouTube channel, he's got a lot of podcasts. And like, if I was going to point somebody that was struggling with that, I would point them to Beckett Cook. And what Beckett Cook did, I, I read his article this week about side B, the side B issue, and Beckett Cook is what they're failing at, what this group is failing at is that they're missing the fact that they are not, I, they do not need to identify with that old person. They are a new creature in Christ. They need to use past language. I was this and you can insert homosexuality you can pull that out and insert anything i am no longer that because i am a new creature in christ that is the biblical response to that i was this paul lists this he goes some of you were and he just starts naming off all these sins you were this but now you are sanctified you're washed in the blood you have a new identity in christ you are no longer that person this is, a, this is a distinction that we've got to understand, that we've got to get that I, and, and this is where it, you have to become very careful with the language because there are people that will come to Christ that still struggle with some of those desires. What that person has to understand is that is not your identity. Your desires are not your identity. Your identity is I am in Christ. So this is just one example of things that churches are dealing with where groups come together and try to get a church to accept them um, for their old identity. And it's a, kind of a bizarre thing because the group is saying it's wrong, it's a sin, but it's still who we are. It's like, no, if you're truly, if you're truly justified, if you're truly a believer in Christ, that is a past identity. You don't need to identify with that any longer. 
So we glory when we should. We should glory in the acquittal of our sins and our new identity. I am not that person anymore. That was an old me. I have been born a second time. But we soon discover that we still have a sinful nature. And churches can become stagnant and full of problems when there is a focus on evangelism without a culture of growth after conversion. Because justification happens in a moment, but it takes years to mature in Jesus Christ. And our church culture must reflect the scriptural mandate to make sinners into disciples of Jesus Christ. The very essence of preaching is to save those who believe, and the ministry is for the maturing of the saints. One of the key passages of this is Ephesians 4. This is the Apostle Paul writing and saying, and this is what we call the fivefold ministry. So sometimes you'll hear the term the fivefold ministry. He gives apostles, prophets, pastors, evangelists, teachers. Five, five different areas within ministry. So this is Paul writing this. In, in the ESV, it uses the word shepherd in place of pastor, but it's the same office. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. So this is the purpose of the fivefold ministry is to bring people into spiritual maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children. So there's that infant child language. They were children, we were children, but the ministry is going to move us to a place where we measure to the stature of the fullness of Christ. No longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. So there's that growth language. We are to grow up in every way in Him who is the head in the Christ. That's what it means to be spiritually mature, and that's how we get to spiritual maturity. There are churches that can't keep new believers because they don't understand that this is a biblical, scriptural process. And so the new believer comes into faith, and immediately the church says, okay, you're a new believer, you have to line up to this set of of behavioral expectations and say, well, are these standards of righteousness good and proper to have? And say, yes, emphatically yes. But if the new believer complies with a standard without first understanding it and more importantly believing it, what good has been done other than they please the church? Now, let's say we had a standard and said, hey, a standard of this church, and this is not far-fetched because there's churches that teach the standard, um, I know churches that teach this standard. I know people in churches that teach this standard. It's not where I'm at, but that's their, that's their business, would be a standard of not wearing short sleeves. Like, you need to have long sleeves on 365. Okay, if a believer came into that church and only did that because the church asked them to without understanding the church's biblical warrant for it, what has been accomplished other than they're lining up to a set of standards? Um, very little good has been done. It is in this environment that people worry about more 
about pleasing a pastor than they do about pleasing God. And the end result can often be people who live duplicious lives, keeping things hidden for the sake of appearing righteous. As long as I appear righteous, as long as I satisfy the church, um, but I, that means I'm going to have two sets of books. I'm going to have one set of books, this is like the, the mafia, you know, they, ha they have two sets of books. One, uh, one for themselves, this is the real set, this is what matters, and this is the set if we ever get raided and have to show the IRS. Uh, it's kind of the same idea that's going along here. The very definition of integrity is oneness. I mean, think about what that means in math. It's, it's, this, it's integrated into one. To have integrity means you are at one in private and you are one in public. You are the same person. This is the very definition of integrity. And I think a big part of being sanctified by God means to have that kind of integrity. Biblical sanctification calls for honesty before God with a pure heart. And in a church that values the process of sanctification, people can be open and honest about their struggles. New believers and seasoned saints alike can come before the church and say, I'm struggling with X, Y, and Z, and I need help. I've often thought a church, a person could come off the street and come to the front and get prayed for and openly say, I'm struggling with this, this, and this, and everybody reach out their arm and say, oh, that's okay. God can deliver you from that. He can help you. We're here for you for that. Everybody would do that. But let a person who sat on a pew for 30 years come forward and say, I'm struggling with the same X, Y, and Z, and you get this gasp like, oh, you've been here for a long time. You should have this figured out by now. It's like, okay, we can... We can play pretend if we want to, but let's be honest, people have struggles that have been around to church a long time. And this is not a license for sinful living. It is a pathway to true holiness. When we desire to be holy because He is holy, our motives become pure. No longer are we concerned with pleasing people or lining up to a church guideline. We now feel drawn to the center of His nature, which is holiness and pure light. Psalmist said that God dwells in the light that no man can approach. What is that light? It's pure holiness. It's God's nature. And we, we look at God and, you know, we look at His light and, and we turn around to the people who aren't as far along as the journey on us and we kind of, we can damn and condemn those people. It's like, man, they don't have very much light turn around to his holy light and we're just blinded by that nature like we're not inside that that pure light uh, none of us are there we're all looking towards the light we renounce the hidden things of dishonesty and strive to live pure lives separated from this world and its value system the book of galatians in the new testament is a divinely inspired letter written by the apostle paul proclaiming our freedom from the law and sin. And most of the first converts in the early church were Jewish, and they struggled with their dual identity as both a Jew and a Christian. That's why much of the Old Testament is written towards this, to the Jews who are now believers. Because as a believer, faith in Christ gave them a newfound liberty from the law that they faithfully followed. I'm, you're telling me as a Jew, I've always followed this Old Testament, I don't eat pork, 
Don't eat bacon. Now you're telling me as a believer in Christ that I'm free, I'm not bound to that legal system anymore. The moral law of Christ is eternal, but the ceremonial law of the Old Testament I don't have to follow. You know, people who aren't Jewish, they're coming into faith, and you mean they don't have to be circumcised to be saved? It was a big deal in the early church. Because to be in covenant with God in the Old Testament, under Judaism, meant you had to be circumcised if you were a man. And now Paul's saying circumcision, it's of the heart. It's an inner circumcision of, of, the, of the heart, the inner man. And so the Jews struggled with this. So there are two ways to achieve a life that is clean and moral. Not, I'm not talking about salvation or holiness, I'm talking about morality. You could live a legalistic lifestyle. You do what you do because there are rules that dictate how you live. It's a rigid way of life, but the supremacy of the letter of the law takes precedence over the spirit of the law. Your decision of where to draw the lines in your life are dictated by does it break a rule or is this legal or not legal? People ever ask the question, can I go to heaven and still do this? That's legalistic thinking. I've heard people say, I'd rather get to heaven and find out that I could have done it than go to hell and find out that I couldn't have done it. I'm like, wrong. You're misunderstanding the whole nature of what it means to be saved. This is not how this works. And it's not a license for loose living. It's not a license for sin. It is a, it is a clarification to say nobody's going to heaven because they're good or bad. Nobody's going to hell because they're good or bad. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. You're either justified by your faith or you're not. The right behavior follows a person who is in Christ. I have no reason to believe that a person who claims to be in Christ and has no lifestyle change after that, yes, I would question that, that salvation. Um, because if you are in Christ, Truly, and this is not mental gymnastic beliefs. This is not standing up and saying, I believe in Jesus, I pray to sinner's prayer. That does not save anybody. Does not do it. The devils believe. Devils believe there is one God and they tremble. New Testament writings. Mental acknowledgement of God does not. Mental acknowledgement of Christ as the Messiah, as the Lord, mental, it does not save people. There is a saving faith. This is not it. Saving faith transforms the lives of people. But it is a natural transformation. We make decisions with the thought in, in legalistic thinking, what will other people think versus what does the Scripture say? Legalism caters to the opinions of men and neglects the voice of of God and the shortcoming of legalism is that it affects primarily the outward person. You clean up really fast legalistically, but it does little to actually change the heart and the mind. Legalism produces people who look right but who aren't right. People who are product of a rules based culture may faithfully attend church, but they don't grow in Christ. And the result becomes people who are frustrated, condemned, aggressive, and depressed. The second approach to living a God-pleasing life is found in walking in the liberty of God and His Word. And when you walk this path, your eyes aren't looking down for lines that dictate righteous living. Your head is held up high and you're looking to Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of your faith. 
And I will always make the argument. See, not every hill's worth dying on, and some are, and I would die on this hill to say that the life lived with an attitude of what pleases Jesus will be a life that's lived further away from the world, its values, and its systems than a life that says, how close to the line can I get? You'll practice things and do things in your life, and you will abstain from things in your life because you say, you know what, that doesn't please God in my life. Church has never said a thing about it. I've never asked anybody about it. I just know that in my life, that particular thing is not healthy spiritually. I could do it and be okay. I don't want to do it and be okay because I think God's leading me. It's that, uh, that, that voice of the Spirit that's inside of us talking to us, guiding us. Those who walk away from God do so because their eyes, hearts, and minds are fixated upon this world. And the glory of walking with your eyes fixated upon Jesus is found in the principle that says you gravitate what you look at. One of the things they teach early drivers is like, don't look at this. And I grew up on two-lane roads, so it's even more very relevant there because you don't have much room for error. You don't look at the car coming towards you. You don't keep your eyes off because whatever you look at, that's where you'll gravitate. I mean, it's like, no, you, you, you keep your eyes ahead of you because wherever, wherever your eyes go, you just naturally follow. So it is in our spiritual walk. Whatever you put your eyes on, you'll naturally gravitate toward what you look at. And when you look to Him, you move toward Him and you take on His nature and His image and you do it with a life filled with joy. Now, there are still lines and standards of righteousness when you walk in freedom with Jesus. The difference is the standard is not determined by what breaks the rule. The standard is determined by what pleases Jesus. You make the decision of what to allow in your life asking the question, does this glorify God, instead of asking, does this break a church rule? There are simply too many variables and choices that our culture offers to make a rule for everything. It, just, it, it can't be done. But if you ask the question, does what I'm allowing honor his name and his word? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You live your whole life not going past that first line and just saying, what I want to do, Father, is I want to honor, I want to hallow, reverence your name. If we choose to tailor our lifestyle according to his pleasure and his word, we will be holy as he is holy. You say, well, and I understand the argument then that could be made is like, well, you're opening up the door for a whole bunch of sinful living with this kind of thinking. And it is true, there are some people who in an effort to live a more accommodating lifestyle have done so in the name of Christian liberty. However, those who have a desire to be conformed in His image will not use their liberty to fulfill what we want to do that could be considered sinful or wrong. Why? It's because my desire is to please God. Paul says in Galatians, now remember Galatians is the book that's written about all of this Christian liberty that we have. So Paul says, brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Don't use your liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but use it for love to serve one another. The life lived in the liberty of Christ is lived further away from this world and its pleasures in terms of entertainment, fashion, values, more so than a life lived legalistically. So after making his argument 
for justification in Christ versus following Old Testament law, Paul sums up Christian liberty in one statement in Galatians 5. This I say, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would. Just as we are sanctified only by faith through the blood of Christ, the way to holiness is through sanctification through His Spirit and His Word. And walking with God should never become more complicated than that. A life surrendered to His Spirit and His Word will, will produce a sanctified life that is pleasing to God. Christ followers don't live in the flesh and produce the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, it, it doesn't take very long to be around somebody and know if the Spirit of God is at work in their life. Their attitude and actions will reveal what is at work in their heart. The Spirit of God at work in our lives can produce all of these things regardless of our temperament and our personality. So someone with a predisposition to lose their temper can exhibit self-control and patience through the working of the Spirit of God. This is one of the nine fruits of the Spirit, is temperance. So this person could be a complete hothead, say, well, it's because of my Irish temper. I think I've heard every nationality inserted in there for the temper. It's like, whatever your bloodline is, just throw it in there and it justifies my temper. It's like, okay, that's probably true. But there's a work of grace that can be inserted into your life. Paul says, now the works of the flesh, and he names off nine things. He says, but the work of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, temperance, meekness, goodness, faith. Against such there is no law. I think I grabbed seven of those. There's two more. Uh, but temperance is one of those. A harsh, uncaring person can become full of the love of God through the power of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit reveals itself in lives that have been crucified with Christ. So Paul again in Galatians says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And the glory of the Lord is hidden from far too many Christ followers who can point to a conversion experience but cannot understand the appeal of a crucified life. If we look to Him and immerse ourselves in the Word of God, His glory will leave us with so I close with this. I'll preface that there's a quote, and I know Brad and I have talked about this quite a bit, and he's mentioned this quote to me before, but it's probably one of the top five quotes of C.S. Lewis. He said, We are all half hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. And like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We settle for so little when there is infinite amounts of joy that is offered to us. The tragedy of Christianity in our culture is in our ability to be satisfied with the American dream. It's easy to settle into a middle-class comfort and live life really very much like our unsaved neighbors. And our experience with God can be compartmentalized. I do this on Sundays 
as part of my commitment to faith in Christ, but the rest of the week is kind of secular. And then add on top of that vacations and retirement plans and all the things that we like to do that there's nothing wrong with them, but they can blur the vision of a crucified Christ. And the infinite joy that Lewis spoke about cannot be had by fooling around with the pleasures that this life has to offer. We are forced to choose. You fulfill this selfish, carnal nature, it's temporary pleasure. But if you live for Him, it's pleasure forevermore. Paul again in Galatians, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you doing from doing the things that you want to do. We are creatures drawn to delight. We will find pleasure in something. And the part of the soul that seeks fulfillment and pleasure will not be denied. This is reaching back. Um, Jonathan Edwards is the one. You know, so many school children know who Jonathan Edwards is. I don't know if you did or not. We studied Jonathan Edwards in a high school English class. Uh, his f most famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. We studied it as a piece of literature. So I was introduced to Edwards probably at 16 years old, just knew that he preached this hellfire brimstone sermon. I had no idea that he was so much more. But Edwards was so adamant and his, his writing and his sermon so saturated on finding pleasure in Christ. Pleasure seeking is at the core of all of us. We find that there's pleasure in a particular act, and so we return repeatedly because there is a guarantee of satisfaction. It is a wellspring that never rejects or denies. But Lewis was right. We're far too easily pleased. The longing for fulfillment is by divine design. We were created with the capacity to experience joy. We're broken at birth by the curse of sin, and there is a strong tendency to substitute sinful pleasure for godly satisfaction. But there is a source of satisfaction in Christ that cannot compare to anything. The psalmist said, you, make, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He shines His radiant beauty on us, and we bask in His presence. We reflect His glory back to Him, and He is magnified when I shine the glory that He sends. When I reflect it back to Him, He's glorified. When I find pleasure in Christ and nothing else, He is glorified. And as I stand beholding His glory, He does not see His perfect image in me, but His glory reveals things back to me that constantly send me back to repentance and say, Lord, I want to refine this just a little more. I want to be a little more like you. So I go to repentance. I come back. I bask in his glory. His glory identifies this thing in me. It says, nope, still not there yet. So I go back to the altar. I clarify. I, I repent. I empty myself out. I come back to his glory. I bask in his glory. He gets glorified. He sends his glory back to me. I go back to the altar. How often do you do this? For the rest of your life. The rest of your life, you do this. It's not a vicious cycle. It's just a beautiful circle. The altar and glory and repentance. Let's stand. Father, this morning...
it is our eager desire that we leave here, we walk out, and we are mindful. We don't forget the things we've heard. We don't compartmentalize our walk with you, but that we walk out of here today, we take your word, we apply it to our lives, we find altars of repentance, we wouldn't live under condemnation. I can't change the past. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We stand in your glory. We bask in your glory and the light. We feel the warmth of your love, but that, that light also exposes things in us and drives us constantly back to a place of prayer and repentance so that we can stand up again and more perfectly reflect your glory. So. I pray this week that you would bring conviction, not condemnation, but conviction to our hearts that would draw our attention to things that don't please you, that we'd live carefully before you, that we would walk carefully. Our actions, our words, our speech, our deeds, our attitudes would more perfectly reflect who you are, that our lives that we live the words of our mouth, the meditations of our heart would truly reflect the contents of our heart that is full of your spirit. Now go with us this week. Help us to be lights and witnesses in a dark world and live out our faith in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you this morning.